it highlights the importance of data. I mean, it's turned the whole world into epidemiologists, right? That we're all, you know, flattening the curve and thinking about real numbers. And it makes it very hard to BS around that. You know, the facts are the facts. Journalists use data in many different ways. We use data to flesh out our reporting and uncover facts that may be hidden from the public. Data also tells us quite a lot about our audience, who they are, how they interact with our content, and what questions they want answered. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Simon Rogers is a pioneer in data journalism. He was formerly at Twitter and created the Guardian Data Blog. Simon also happens to be the data editor at Google, where he's passionate about educating journalists on how to use data. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to meet you. So first off, how, how did you get interested in, in data journalism? If you'd met me as a child, you would not have thought that I would be a person who'd be naturally drawn to maths or numbers or anything like that. I did not want to be a journalist. Like a lot of people end up in journalism I knew when I was a kid, is what I wanted to do. But honestly, it wasn't something that appealed to me. And and partly, I guess, because I couldn't see how it was relevant to me. And then as a reporter, I did find that I was drawn increasingly to working with the graphics team. And I've thought a lot about what why this was that some you know who doesn't really like maths or numbers could, should end up in this and i think it's really because i was very much drawn to kind of analytical reporting the idea of understanding the world a little bit better through data and that's something that you know is was really appealing to me and after 9-11 i was one of the reporters who really wanted to work with the graphics team a lot and i was lucky enough to get that job when i was at the guardian of working with the graphics team kind of pulling data together and using it to tell stories with amazing designers. So it was kind of like a weird journey for me. It wasn't something I ever knew I would get into. And I guess I I was lucky as much as anything. I managed to find something I really enjoyed and I felt could make a difference. Do you think that maybe, you know, we find, you know, as we we learn more about how people people learn and and sort of process information, do you think maybe you were a little more of a a visual person than, than maybe you thought you were? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I my mum's an artist and I grew up around like my my granddad was a film cameraman. You know, I kind of I've always grown up with visual visual people and I still have some books when I was a kid of the world analysed. I always loved Richard Scarry, you know, who whose books were all about understanding the world just a little bit better and a lot of them were these incredible, very visual designer looks at the world through kind of cartoonish style but actually incredibly accurate. So I think that really appealed to me. And, you know, I think all of us are visual creatures, really, aren't we? Human beings understand visuals and images way before we understand numbers and words. And I've really noticed that with my kids. So one of the things I, I've done is work on a series of books for kids about things like, you know, nature, animals, the body, space, and so on. And that's where we work with great designers to kind of visualize data around those things. And as one of the things I think they really understand finally what I do for a living a little bit because if when you're a kid you kind of want the world to be full of certainties and it's not and data and visuals can kind of help give you a little bit of that certainty by understanding that world a little bit better so yeah I guess I probably am pretty visual and I think that's something I share with a lot of people. How can journalists use data to tell stories what makes data a good thing to sort of start with? Yeah and that's a really interesting question because there's always an assumption that it's difficult to embark in data journalism. I've heard people say to me things like, oh, isn't it expensive? Or how do we get started? 
And my answer to that is actually it's never been as easy in a way to be a data journalist as it is now. And partly that's just because of the sheer kind of breadth of tools that are available. You know, we can all make pretty sophisticated visualizations nowadays because you're just using free tools that are widely available. You don't have to be a coder. You don't have to be a developer. And that's a new thing. And that certainly wasn't the case when I started working in the newsroom. You know, the, there was one designer in the newsroom, one of the graphics designers, who'd actually started with pen and ink. And it's not that long ago that designers worked in pen and ink. You know, and, now, and then suddenly you get drawing software and everything changes. And it's the same with journalists, I think, that the amount of tools and things that are out there has completely changed how this works. Writing about the coronavirus, I'm covering a municipality that's releasing data every day, like new figures, and ended up using Google Sheets to uh, just create a simple graph. And, you know, just to, as a way to represent the data in a different way. And it's not a lot of bells and whistles to it, but people appreciate seeing data presented in different ways. And it enhances your storytelling. And it also kind of frees up the need for you to write everything out, which as a journalist is always important. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good example of the kinds of things that anybody can do now. And there are also, I mean, we haven't talked much about the Google News Initiative, which is my kind of area, but one of the things we've done is support a tool called Flourish, which is built by some former kind of Guardian journalists in London. And the idea of Flourish is the designers can upload their visual to the tool, and then you can use it without coding, without being a developer. You can just go in there and make something pretty sophisticated on your own. And it's things like that that are new. Those are the kinds of things that, that have changed a lot since um, since this field kind of really opened up. You know, you've been doing this for a while. How has sort of data journalism changed, data visualizations have changed, you know, maybe over the last decade or so? It is a decade, actually. <laughs> it's just a day. It's like just over a decade, which is, is so weird. So there are some things that are kind of structural. So, for instance, you know, we're not consuming news on desktops anymore. You know, everything's on mobile now, and that requires a shift in thinking, right? Some, how's something going to work on your little screen that before you would have had on, on your big screen? And you can see that with the real rise of apps, the sort of thing that ProPublica does, where these little apps that tell you stuff. So that's definitely down to that. And also the rise of things like GIFs, one of the oldest formats, are kind of back, and they're back because they work really well on mobile. So there's a bit of that. That's a big change. That's kind of a structural thing in the way we're consuming information. The other change is almost more, and I can't think of a better way to say this than political, in the sense that what you're getting now is journalists around the world who are working to share data and to open up data and to produce really interesting bits of journalism, basically using, uh, on their own, using those free tools, working maybe with nobody else in the newsroom, often in places where it's difficult to do stuff. So. One of the things that the Google News Initiative supports is the the Data Journalism Awards, uh, the Sigma Awards, which are the new kind of International Data Journalism Award. And this year was its launch year. And they had over 500 entries from all over the world, from tiny newsrooms where it's kind of like one person, from places like Texty in Ukraine. It's a really good example. It's a small newsroom doing really sophisticated things with machine learning. Which is a big change, you know. These it's not just the New York Times who are doing amazing data journalism. It's lots and lots of people, and that's really encouraging to see. What you're saying here it kind of makes me think that, you know, a lot of people when they hear data journalism, 
they may be sort of daunted by it. They're like, oh, we got to have an expert come in and do this. We got to have somebody come in and explain it to us or somebody who's dedicated to that. But do, do you think that's sort of the case? Or are we kind of at a point where now we have tools that, that make it so easy for people who, who are just stepping their toe into data journalism to sort of find new new ways to tell these stories? Yeah, I think so. I think it's because it's more about how great the story is. You know, you can do things that are really sophisticated data journalism New York Times did an amazing thing this week as we're talking about the spread of coronavirus and how it started. You know, amazing work. But you can also get really powerful journalism that is almost in context even more powerful than that because, say, you're in a, in a country you know, which has not had a tradition of openness or political freedom and you're there opening up data and producing visualizations with it to make people understand it. That's really, really powerful and and important and just to see that stuff happening is it's just great and and makes me really happy about the the state of the world you know you talk about countries that, that don't have a lot of press freedom and how important it is you know that we have like in the united states for example you know the agriculture departments and you know there are all these other different departments who just as part of their what they do is they they, they amass all this data you know being able to get data sets out to the public out to journalists in a way that they can kind of use it and mine it to tell stories, I mean, is that something that's gotten better or is that still sort of a, a challenge? One of the reasons that we started the data blog back at The Guardian was simply to just open up and publish data. That's all it was. It was a site to take public data, normally published terrible PDFs or whatever hideous format people come up with in order to kind of stop you really downloading it and make it more available. And I think what's happened since then is that you know, there are more and more people doing stuff with data and journalists are getting better at, say, managing terrible data formats. But it's still there. It's still being published in PDFs, which is a ridiculous use. I love PDFs for documents, not for tables, though. And they're still, they're still out there. So a lot of the struggle, <laughs> the struggle is real. It hasn't, some of it hasn't changed. You know, it's still around that, that 80% of your work, which is, you know, just cleaning up data and Certainly, we're working on tools right now to hopefully make some of that stuff easier. So you mentioned machine learning before, and I know that you know there's, there are ways for journalists to use machine learning and AI to sort of help them with their, their process. Can you give me sort of some examples of that? Sure. There's a project that we just worked on, actually. It was a, a GNI project around innovation. And so I've done a few of these now, and my work has kind of gone beyond just data journalism, I guess, into newsroom innovation as well. And this was with El Universal in Mexico. And the editor there had a theory that although there were more homicides than ever before, they weren't being reported. And part of the reason they weren't being reported was because people were intimidated out of reporting it. How do you prove that? It's a hard thing to prove. So what we did was we helped them by um, helping them kind of go through. They had the, the, the official statistics, which would show where people had died. And then what we had was we had the corpus of stories behind Google News, thousands of stories about homicides in Mexico. And we worked with them to kind of like do some machine learning analysis of that gap between the, the murders themselves and the reporting of those murders to find these zones of silence, as to call them. It's a really, you know, it's a project I'm really proud to have been involved with because the team there were amazing and they just wanted to do something really complicated. And actually it's the perfect kind of thing for machine learning and that's the kind of story we want to be able to help with where people have a kind of a tricky issue but the, the result could be really powerful 
before we did this interview, I, I had a, lo- a chance to look at some of the stuff that the Google News Initiative is doing. One of the things I saw that really kind of intrigued me was around like looking at Google Trends. And there's this really neat thing that, that Google Trends did with Schema and Axios about the lifespan of a news story. And I found that really fascinating, obviously, because, you know, from a journalistic perspective, you know, that's really kind of informative to see, you know, how an idea sort of grows in, in search and, you know, how long something lasts. I mean, that that's really kind of informative to choosing how and when you do your story, how you present it, and then really kind of when you need to update it and when you need to move on to something else. So how can examining data like trends help journalists change the way that they cover the news? The cool thing about Google Trends data is that, you know, direct access into what people are searching for. If you think about how many billions of searches there are, and that's a really powerful data set. I'd argue it's actually the biggest journalistically available data set like out there right now. So especially when you've got something awful like the, the coronavirus pandemic, which is happening now, we want to know what people want to understand about that. What are people asking on search about that? You can actually see that through the data, and it's incredibly honest because, you know, we're as never as honest as we are with our search engines. It's big, right? So it takes you beyond. It's not about, I don't know, presenting yourself to the world. So if you look at, like, social media data, which I've worked with as well, is, is all about how you present yourself to the world, social media. But search data is about the things you actually care about. What matters to you is, is what you'll search about. So we're getting access to that, especially around time when we all want to know how we're feeling about what's going on can be really important and powerful, I think. And you know, trends data will just give you that kind of honest view of, of what people care about, whether at one end it's coronavirus symptoms, but at the other end it might be bread recipes or you know, how to, just something we've just dealt with, how to hold a, a birthday party for a 16-year-old when you can't <laughs> go out of the house. So things like that where, you know, you're, and it kind of, in a way, weird way, it kind of connects us because it makes, it makes you realize the things you're looking for are actually not so weird and unusual. There are millions of people out there doing the same thing right now. Yeah, I know that, you know, being an editor, looking at data analytics, trying to understand, you know, how people use your website and, you know, reading that data, but then also you're looking at search and the terms and the information that they're looking for and, and sort of using that to help inform you know, your story choices and, you know, especially in search, I mean, people are telling you what they, they want to know, you know, and once you can sort of crack that, then you can, you can try to answer some of those questions. Well, yeah, and we've, we've all done written Q&A pieces, haven't we, about, yeah. about a particular issue where you're trying to say, you know, answer the questions you think people want to know. Well, we can find out the questions people actually want to know. It's there, you know, and it's there for, and, you know, because it's public available tools, trends.google.com, it's, it's something that a lot of people can explore. I and mean, I think right now it's particularly powerful. And for some things it's not going to, you know, it won't tell you who's going to win a ball game, you know. Yeah. But it will tell you, <laughs> it will tell you who the most searched player or the, what the most, you know, the moment that resonated during that game was. And right now, you know, there's a real mix you know, where, you know, we're looking at data. I was looking at data this morning and some of it's around, obviously, people searching for symptoms. But then it changes over time. So if you look at searches, say, in Italy, you know, a month ago, their light searches are here now in the US. Yeah. It's like you can you can see it. So in Italy a month ago, it was like, when will this end? What what does it mean to not be able to go out of the house? Things like that. And now that's what people are asking here. I think you can use it in lots of interesting ways. And we're only really kind of scraping the surface of that. This, this is stuff that's, you know, we're only just, we've only had real-time search data for a few years. 
I was looking at that data before the interview and he's seeing things like, you know, how to make a mask or how do I get a mask? Uh, <laughs> it's that peek into people's mind into what's concerning them. And, you know, we are, we are in probably the biggest story that, you know, any journalist is probably going to cover in their life, this pandemic. And tell me some of the things that Google has done in how it's presented its data around the coronavirus as a resource for, for journalists, but not just for journalists, but for everybody. Right now, if you go to the Trends site, you'll see a, a page on coronavirus. And we've actually now got 35 countries, unique kind of curated um, data pages on coronavirus. And on those pages are real-time widgets. I said widgets, that's a terrible word. Real-time <laughs> data viz, data viz um, things that can be embedded. Now, they can be embedded as live or you can kind of freeze them where they are. So maps and line charts and things like that. So that's available like right now and that's there. We also have a newsletter which people can sign up for. Yeah, we can. Sh- I'll share the contact details with you to, to add in. But that's yeah, you know, where journalists will add some of that extra stuff in. But it's all there. It's on Google Trends site. And often we have people approach us and want to do interesting data stories where yeah, you know, they can't quite get the right data off the front end. So we will help with those and help make those those stories happen by kind of pulling out data, whether it's like county level searches or city level searches, whatever it might be. Things that are just a little bit different to what you might see, you might see on the site. So, what is a like an incident like this? What does that sort of reveal to you in looking at the data? And for you being able to explain to people, look, you see what this is doing. You know, this is why it's important to understand this stuff. What does an event like this, you know, do? I guess from a data person's perspective. For me, just going beyond you know, the trends data we're saying to the rest of the world, it highlights the importance of data. I mean, it's turned the whole world into epidemiologists, right? That we're all, you know, flattening the curve and thinking about real numbers. And it makes it very hard to BS around that. You know, the facts are the facts. And even with the, you know, the horrible kind of like spate of misinformation that's out there, you know, just seeing how, how much people want to know what the facts are is really interesting to me. And I think that's, you know, what a crisis like this reveals is like how much we all need reliable, true information that we can trust. You know, we've all always known that's the case, but actually seeing the importance of that in real time, I think is really powerful. Yeah, especially when you when you look at the gravity of the situation, you know, that people's health and people's lives are and whole communities are impacted by this at the same time or in succession, as it were. Simon, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.